We are continuing in the Gospel of Luke, uh, getting into chapter 10 uh, this week. Uh, We're following on the interactions uh, that Jesus had at the end of chapter 9, you remember that, uh, where he uh, described uh, the act of following him as being uh, an enterprise in which there would be no compromises, uh, in which there would be no delay, and uh, and in which there would be wholehearted Uh, counting of the cost. Of course, that issue of counting the cost is going to come back up in a few more chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Um, But basically, what Jesus is doing, as I've mentioned before, is getting the disciples ready uh, for Jerusalem and for his departure. That's what this whole section from chapter, the middle of chapter 9, all the way to the uh, events uh, around the crucifixion uh, is about. He's getting the disciples ready. And in some ways, I think it's an appropriate motif uh, for Carriage Lane Church uh, because you, uh, we, in as much as I'm a part of you uh, for these months, are getting ready uh, for the next iteration in the life of the church uh, with the next pastor. And there's a lot of prayer taking place uh, for the next pastor, and uh, there's a lot of prayer taking place for the search committee, uh, but there needs to be prayer for the congregation. Uh, and the, the question could be asked, what kind of congregation will the next pastor find uh, when he begins his ministry here? It's not simply that we're throwing everything on the pastor, but the congregation itself, I think it's appropriate to say, uh, should get ready. Uh, and so with that, uh, we want to pay attention to what uh, Jesus is saying. If, if you're not a Christian, I hope that this passage can be of help to you because you get to kind of see behind uh, the scenes. You get to see behind the surface. Uh, oftentimes, Christians or sim- non-Christians are simply invited uh, to come to Christ, to take a look at Him, and, and the implicit promise is things are going to go well with you. Uh, things are going to be great uh, if you will come to Christ. Um, every Christian could tell you there's more to that than meets the eye, uh, that there's a deeper sense in which well, sure, things are going to be great, but some things are going to become a lot more difficult. And you get to see that when you pay attention to Jesus discipling his disciples, getting them ready. Uh, if you are a Christian, hopefully this is equally beneficial, maybe even more so, because you might be surprised once again to find that you have unwittingly uh, compromised your faith. Uh, you have unwittingly embraced the values Uh, of the world and the flesh, uh, not to say the accusations and the slander of the devil, uh, and so that you have, I mean, our biblical language is, without even knowing it, walked away from your first love. Uh, So there there is that call in the book of Revelation uh, that the church should return to its first love. So it's good for us to pay attention to these things and see uh, if we can apply them to our lives. So with that, Uh, Let me read these first 24 verses uh, of Luke chapter 10. Uh, This is the Word of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, 
and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go, to, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to the heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son, who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you, that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus far the reading of God's word. Uh, May he bless it uh, in our hearing, because faith uh, comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So the mission is expanding, that's what's taking place here. Uh, This is to be compared, actually, if you're uh, reading the Gospel of Luke with what, took, with what took place in the beginning of chapter 9 when Jesus sent out the 12. Uh, here the expansion is notable. Uh, he sent out the 12 earlier uh, to preach the kingdom and to heal, and it was as simple as that. Uh, now there are 72 others that are being sent out. Uh, the number 72 is significant. Uh, it represents uh, in Uh, The book of Genesis, all of the nations, uh, you'll see the footnote uh, might be 70, but that also has significance in that it it represents all of Israel. So basically what's happening is that all of them are being sent out, uh, 72 representing the fact that the whole church is given uh, to the task. It's not just the clergy. Uh, If you only read chapter 9, you would think that there's only a select few who are sent out to proclaim the kingdom. 
Uh, but here Jesus is basically saying everyone is sent out uh, for the proclamation of the kingdom. This is for you uh, as well as for me, but this is for all of us. Talent, skill level, even giftedness are not in view. Uh, it's the message that is central. And, and again, 72 is reflective of the 72 nations in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. The stakes seem to have been raised compared to chapter 9. Uh, now it's a more dangerous endeavor. It's going to be marked by opposition, by danger. Uh, it's going to require single-mindedness. Uh, the disciples are going to be vulnerable as lambs among the wolves. Uh, it's a no-nonsense mission. Uh, ordinary customs are being laid aside. Uh, they're not seeking to persuade. They're simply announcing and looking for receptivity. Uh, and the announcement of the nearness of the kingdom serves uh, as both a blessing and a judgment. Uh, it will either bless those who receive it or, or it will act as a judgment against those who don't. Healing accompanies the announcement as it always does. Uh, Jesus pronounces woe on the unrepentant cities. Uh, as earlier in Luke when he had pronounced woe on the rich, on the well-fed, on the happy, and on the popular. That's back in Luke chapter 6. Uh, here a woe is pronounced against uh, these unreceptive cities. And, and I think it's important to note uh, that these woes are not simply judgments of condemnation, uh, but there really is a sense, if I can say it, of, of empathy in Jesus' voice. Don't you know what is happening to you? Don't you understand what the stakes are? Don't you see? And there's a, there's a little bit of a plea uh, in the woes that are pronounced. Uh, the surprising thing is, is that we don't get a detailed account from the disciples of what actually happened. We get a very brief account. Uh, they come back with joy and they report uh, that even uh, the demons had submitted themselves to them. Uh, and I think that's because what Luke wants us to pay attention to uh, is the words of Jesus. So even though I don't personally prefer a red-letter edition of the Bible uh, because all the words ought to be read, uh, we ought to pay very close attention to what exactly Jesus is saying here. I, I'm going to bring to our attention six things. Uh, each one of them could be a matter of sustained reflection uh, for you later in the day and later on in the week. Uh, but let's see if we can pay attention uh, to these things. Um, First, right off the bat, uh, Jesus tells them to pray. In verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly uh, to the Lord of the harvest. It's interesting that Jesus is the one who's doing the sending. The Lord is the one who's doing the sending. Uh, the Lord appointed 72 others. He says, I am sending you out. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest uh, would send out laborers. Now, this is a bit of a drumbeat in the Gospel of Luke. It's been a bit of a drumbeat in the sermons that I've preached. Uh, and that is the necessity of prayer. Prayer looms large in the Gospel of Luke, and we don't want to forget that. We don't want to overlook it, even though it's something that uh, we, our eyes tend to glaze over, and we say, oh, of course. But we saw Jesus praying before Peter's profession of faith, and we understood from that that the only way really to explain Peter's conversion, Peter's understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, was that Jesus was praying for him. 
that when Jesus is praying, things start to happen. And then we saw that interesting place in uh, chapter 9, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus invites three of the disciples with him up on the mountain to pray, whereupon they immediately fall fast asleep. Uh, I didn't mention it at the time, but you know, they come down off the Mount of Transfiguration and there's a man waiting at the bottom and, uh, and he says, I've asked your disciples to heal my son, uh, my only son, but they couldn't do it. And Jesus heals the boy, drives out the demon. And later on, in, well, actually it's in the Gospel of Mark, in the Mark account, uh, the disciples then asked Jesus, why couldn't we uh, cast out that demon? And Jesus said, this one only comes out by prayer. And I think the implication is, you guys were trying to cast out a demon without praying. He had already given them complete authority over every demonic entity at the beginning of the chapter, but here they were stumped. And why were they stumped? Jesus says, you didn't pray. Um, so, once again, how do you get ready? Well, you get ready by praying. Uh, we need to pray before all else, as a fundamental demonstration of faith. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean that you have put your trust in Christ if that is your claim? What does it mean that you have uh, joined the church? What does it mean that you call yourself a Christian? How is that evidenced in any way? Well, you know, I think most of us would say it is evidenced primarily in a certain uprightness of life. And I wouldn't want to decry uprightness in life. It's a good thing. It serves us all very well. Um, But you would be hard-pressed to say that there's anything uh, more important than prayer. That this is how the life of a Christian is demonstrated. This is how a life of a Christian is lived. Now, I will say this as a person who is enormously weak in prayer. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, let's all agree together that we are weak in prayer Uh, Let's confess that, and then let's pray. We need to pray. You need to be about praying, and if if Jesus is a God, you need to be about praying with other people. He said that two or three gathered together praying uh, would have a particular impact uh, in heaven. Uh, So that's the first thing to note, uh, that prayer is enjoined right at the beginning of this mission. Uh, The second thing to note is that Jesus is uh, basically telling them to do what he's been doing, and that is to preach the kingdom of God. He gives them authority. uh, He gives them power. uh, But at the heart of what he's telling them to do is to announce uh, the kingdom. Uh, You know that the preaching of the kingdom is at the heart of Jesus' ministry. Um, At the end of his first public ministry in the gospel of Luke, he's says to the disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. He sends out the 12 in chapter 9 to proclaim the kingdom. Likewise here, the 72. In volume 2 of Luke's work, which is the book of Acts, uh, Philip preaches the good news about the kingdom. Paul, in his most sustained ministry in Ephesus, speaks boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom. And Acts ends with Paul in Rome testifying to and proclaiming the kingdom. Uh, So this message of the kingdom is absolutely central to what Jesus is communicating. A central message, at least in this instance, is peace. 
that as they proclaim the kingdom, they go to these individual houses and they say, peace be to this house. Now, that, that's a big deal uh, in the Bible. It, it, it occurs as a small thing uh, here in this account. Um, but shalom in the Old Testament is the picture of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God brings peace. Not just the absence of war, not just the absence of social discord, uh, but a communal well-being, a universal flourishing, a wholeness, a security, a plenty uh, that occurs in uh, the family of God, that occurs under the kingship of God. Uh, One of the deep thinkers uh, writes a book on this, and he calls... Uh, shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. You know, so the angels at Jesus' birth announced peace on earth among those with whom God is well pleased. Paul writes the Romans and says the kingdom of God is neither eating nor drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This peace is accomplished by the victory of Jesus over the devil and all evil forces. And the triumph of Jesus captures the hearts of all who see him. So the second thing to think about is the place of the kingdom of God in your own life. Uh, How is it that you understand your faith? How is it that you understand your Christian profession in terms of a kingdom? Uh, Jesus said that all things would be given to those who sought first the kingdom of God. Remember that? He says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. And, and, and this is a good thing to remember uh, in the wake of the call to prayer, because usually when we pray, our basic instinct is to pray for felt needs, is to pray for uh, those who are sick, to pray for, those, pray for those who need healing, to pray for those who are in a tight spot. And so it's easy when you get any group of Christians together, or even non-Christians, say, what kind of things would you want God to do in your life? And we make up a quick list of, these are my hardships, and this is where I want resolution. And, and Jesus says at one point, you know, in fact, all of that stuff will be added to you if you will seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. If you make any, and to invert that, I will just say that if you make anything other than the kingdom your primary aim, uh, you're going to miss not only the kingdom, but you're going to miss your primary aim as well. You're going to miss the thing that you're looking for. So we understand Christian faithfulness in terms of prayer. We understand Christian identity in terms of being subjects of a king. The third thing that I want to mention And this is pretty dramatic, and I don't want us to miss it. Uh, After the 72 return, uh, Jesus stifles and then redirects their enthusiasm. In verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, that's an interesting way of responding to their joy. I mean, I imagine they're coming back, arms over each other's shoulders, laughing, carrying on, telling the stories about how awesome it was to go out imbued with this power 
uh, and watch the effects of it. Uh, They're quite pleased uh, with the success of the mission, particularly that the demons are submitting. And I want to say, who among us would not be equally pleased? Uh, Wouldn't it be fun uh, to see that happen? And they come back, again, really happy about it. Uh, But he expressly tells them, don't rejoice in this. You know, one of the preachers I read said that Jesus says, wipe that smile off your face. It's a bit of a buzzkill, a bit of a party pooper. They come in rejoicing, and he says, stop it. Let's rethink this a little bit. Uh, Again, why would he do it? Well, I think very simply put, uh, there is a snare in success, uh, particularly in ministry success. And in ministry success, it is painfully easy Uh, to forget the main thing. You know, the recent history of the church uh, is littered with flashes of success followed by scandal and demise. Now, there are some notable exceptions. You know, I knew a guy in North Carolina many years ago when I was in ministry there, and he pastored a small little church in a small little college town, and, uh, and he got called to a small little church in a beach town, and, uh, and he went there, and that church exploded. Uh, you know, within a few years, there were well over 1,000 people in attendance. And I remember bumping into him at a conference, and I said, what did you do? What, what's going on? And he, kind of, he laughed and said, Rick, you know who I am. You, you know what my gift set is. I'm not doing anything different than I ever did at that previous place. It's just that God has chosen to act. And he was remarkably distant from that success. He laid no claim to it. I remember talking to another guy who had had extraordinary success uh, in his ministry. And and he said to me, uh, yeah, you know, we're hot right now, but nobody stays hot forever. So there are exceptions to it. But in fact, what you see more frequently is the latching on to success in a dangerous way. Um, that sets the stage for a fall. Uh, There's a danger not only in leaders, but also in churches themselves who think very highly of themselves, who pat themselves on the back for their history and their accomplishments. Uh, I was on a motorcycle ride one time. I'll stop bringing up motorcycles soon. But uh, uh, a friend of mine and I headed out of Du Bois, Wyoming. We made our way through the Wind River Canyon, and at 11 o'clock in, on Sunday morning, we arrived in Thermopolis. And as we would do, at 11 o'clock, we'd start looking for a church. Uh, well, the Presbyterians only had an early service, and the Episcopalians were uh, already out as well. And the only thing we find is this Baptist church downtown. And they were celebrating, I think it was the 100th anniversary of the church. And so we thought, we, you know, let's pull into this place and see what it's like. And so we walk in, and sit down. It was a big celebration. They had a men's quartet, and these guys actually were awesome. They, you know, they were really sharp. And, uh, and then the minister gets up and, uh, and regales the congregation with all of the missions giving that had taken place and all of the successes, and the title of the sermon was The Greatest Thing About This Church. And, uh, and I was growing a little bit antsy about hearing them pat themselves on the back. Uh, but after he listed all of their successes, he, he said, now I do want to tell you what 
the greatest thing about the church is. In fact, it's the only great thing about the church. And then he preached on the promise of Jesus to sustain the church, the promise that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And he made the whole sermon about Jesus and his faithfulness. And that was a morning that was memorable. It was a great morning to be there. Again, there is a danger in enjoying success, and that's what the disciples are doing. And he says, you're forgetting the main thing. Don't rejoice that the demons are submitting, but, in verse 20, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, there's more to this than meets the eye. Uh, In ancient Near Eastern culture, it was quite likely uh, that the people to whom Jesus was speaking would never have seen their name written at all. Uh, They weren't like us with pads of paper and pens uh, set up next to the refrigerator to make grocery lists. They didn't have those materials. They wouldn't see their names written. And in fact, in everything leading up to modern culture, um, uh, a lot of people didn't even have names, so to speak. I mean, there were names, sure, that people called them when they came to supper, but they were not known as people with a name. Uh, To be a person with a name would have meant a certain amount of prestige, a certain amount of wealth, you know, a certain kind of uh, background, a certain family that you came from. Even to have a name throughout most of history indicated what we would call today privilege. Jesus has rejoiced that your names are written and that they are written in heaven, that you have a name that is known in heaven. I mean, what he's really doing is saying, how about a little joy in your salvation uh, as well as joy in your success? You know, when this is the most important thing to you, that your name is written in heaven, when you rejoice not in your accomplishments, not in your success, but in your salvation, it it produces a pretty serious personality transformation. You know, the apostle would say that's when righteousness, peace, and joy become your meat and drink, when you rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Uh, Fears are identified and then stilled. You might not even know you're afraid. Uh, You do know that you're grumpy. You know that you've developed a short fuse. Uh, But you might not know that what has happened in you is that you started to rejoice in things other than the fact that your name is written in heaven. There is freedom on offer for those who rejoice that their name is written in heaven. And not freedom from the law, but freedom to worship. Freedom to worship in an unfettered way. Uh, with reverence and with awe in spirit and in truth. Now, here's the dramatic thing about this. What's the rationale? The rationale for these comments is quite simply uh, staggering. Jesus claims to have seen Satan fall from heaven. Now, again, it's a little bit of a confusing verse. Uh, What's the connection between this and what they were doing? Well, I'm going to take the baseline approach to this. Satan fell like lightning from heaven before the foundations of the earth. 
Before the creation of the universe, before the serpent in the Garden of Eden, Satan fell from heaven. This is mysterious. It's described somewhat poetically uh, in an oblique kind of way in Isaiah 14. You might, you might remember that verse, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. That's the satanic rebellion. Isaiah concludes that, but you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And Jesus here is claiming to have seen that. I saw that happen. I was watching, is the literal Greek uh, translation. As they are coming back with all this happiness about having seen the demons submit, he may have been saying, I once knew someone who had great honor and glory and beauty, and he reveled in it and was puffed up by it and had an epic downfall. Again, it says something about Jesus, and there's something more here uh, that we'll see in a minute that also says something about Jesus. Uh, But the point is made. Keep the main thing the main thing. Don't get distracted by success, power, authority, wealth, comfort, privilege, the trappings of the world and the flesh. Rather rejoice in the salvation of a sinner. You know, the song that we sing is a good one. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, it is well with my soul. Love the word bliss. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. So the fourth thing I want us to notice, uh, Jesus is again praying. uh, In verse 21, in that same hour, He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's often hard for us to think of Jesus rejoicing. I I think we have a tendency to read the Bible in it with a particular um, somber mood uh, on us as we read about Jesus living his life on his way to the cross. Uh, you have to kind of dig around to see if there are any uh, implications, possibly, of humor. Now, I think some of them are there. But here, straight up, it says that Jesus is rejoicing, that he's full of joy in the Holy Spirit. The initial success of the mission is delightful to him. He is like that good shepherd who has found the lost sheep, puts the lost sheep on his shoulders, and goes home and throws a party. He knows what it's like to rejoice. He knows what it's like to have fun. Uh, But his rejoicing is is deeper than that. Uh, He sees the values of the kingdom being fulfilled in that the poor are the recipients of God's grace. In this case, children. And the rich are being excluded. He's delighted in that. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things 
from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. So he's rejoicing not only in the success of the ministry, he's rejoicing in the failure of the ministry. That Chorus and Bethsaida and Capernaum are unmoved. And Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit and says, Father, I'm so happy that you are hiding these things from the wise and understanding, but revealing them uh, to babes. And all of redemptive history is converging here. Tyre and Sidon were known to be places where great sins had been committed. And we all know the story of Sodom. And Jesus says it's going to be better in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon and, and Sodom uh, than it is for these cities, because they would have repented in similar circumstances. So this is uh, reminiscent of Mary's song at the very beginning, my, my, my soul magnifies the Lord because he has taken notice of the humble estate of his servant. He's lifting up the poor uh, and the rich he is sending away empty. Jesus is apparently delighted in the ignorance of those who thought they were smart, that the truth of the gospel is hidden from them. Some of us are inhabitants of a bubble, or so I've been told. I was telling my daughter this week, who's visiting, that one of the remarkable things to me about living here the past six months has been how many people uh, have uh, lived for 20 or 30 or more years in Fayette County uh, because it's such a great place to be. Um, we are those who are, in many ways, uh, rich in exactly the way that Jesus is describing it uh, here in the Gospel of Luke. And I th- I, the, the only takeaway that you have to make from this is that if you want to follow Jesus in the ways that he is describing here, when he says, follow me, uh, your wealth may likely be inhibiting you. It's possible. So it's good to be self-reflective. Might be necessary for you to get rid of some of it. Be careful what pleases you. And I say, I'll I'll point that back to myself. All of us need to be careful about what pleases us uh, who live here uh, in a bubble. Fifthly, somehow in the context of that prayer, uh, Jesus tells those listening of his place in God's plan. I don't know how the segue takes place. He says, yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. And then in verse 22, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So this all things have been handed over to me. He's already said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Here he's saying that everything's been put into my hands. And, uh, and I, I just think the, the, the point to be made briefly is Jesus is always much larger than you expect him to be. And he will not be uh, contained by your um, slow imaginations. Always much larger. Always much more severe. Always much more gracious. Always much more powerful than you imagine him to be. There's always more to understand uh, in the heart of Uh, of Jesus. And then the last thing, sixthly, is that Jesus turns back to his disciples at the end of this passage, and he says, blessed 
are the eyes that see what you see. Uh, For I tell you, this is another one of Jesus' hidden and isolated beatitudes. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it. He's saying you can't appreciate how great this is, but trust me. Trust me, you are living in unbelievable times. Now, that was true for them. And I have often, you know, if I've ever imagined myself time traveling, wondered what, would, what it would have been like to have been there at this time. Uh, but we are also living in a pretty remarkable time uh, about which many people would have longed uh, to participate in. Uh, it is uh, almost embarrassing, uh, the resources that we have. I remember going to Brazil uh, one time and, and asking about a Bible translation, and they said, we've got two. We've got your version of a King James, and we've got your version of an NIV, which just came out, and we're thrilled with it. And I thought about the half a dozen Bible translations that I bring up on my computer screen when I want to compare. And I think about the wealth of commentaries and even the study Bibles that seem to come out about one every six months, don't they? Uh, But we have got extraordinary, we're living in an extraordinary time in terms of access uh, to the Scriptures. So that's all that Jesus is saying. I mean, the application is pretty plain throughout. We have to pray. Uh, We need to understand the church not as a club or an interest group. We're citizens of the kingdom, and we understand ourselves to be subjects of a king. Uh, We need to move away from the enticements of the world and the flesh and go more deeply into the joy of salvation. Jesus is much larger than you think. He will not be confined to your small imaginations. And then take a step back and get blown away by the real privilege of your life and what you have in front of you uh, that is yours for the taking. And all of that descends and condenses into this table. Uh, Come hungry. Come thirsty. Come to a much larger Savior uh, than you ordinarily experience. And come and revel in his affection for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we need your grace to appropriate the things that we uh, have grown to take for granted. Uh, We know how much you love the church, uh, that you sent Jesus uh, on our behalf and in our place. And we want now to taste and see that you are good, to the effect that you would be glorified in the church and that we, we would be more and more satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen.